0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, uh, if you're joining us online or you're here on our campus, I want to say welcome to Sunridge. If you're a guest with us, I'm the lead pastor here. That's how I serve. And that's all. My name's Britt. I want you to know that. And I want to be the first to welcome you. But I would love for our church to welcome you as well. So, like, take a second, Sunridge, and just, like, look at someone besides me, and let's just say a nice, loud, welcome to Sunridge. All right. That was kind of average, actually. We'll practice that. I know that was a new thing that I, a new wrinkle I threw at you guys. So how many of you guys listen or read my emails when they come out? Okay, all all 20 of you. Thank you. Um, Well, you know that in the email uh, this week, I told you that uh, one time in my life, a moment that I'm not proud of, I stood before a judge in court. (laughs) You you may have seen the Dateline episode uh, regarding that. Actually, what happened was I was a sophomore in college, and I was headed uh, to school in Colorado, and I was in kind of a hurry. So I got a speeding ticket. But it wasn't like your regular speeding ticket. Um, it was 125 and a 65. And so, oh my gosh. Blame my parents. They gave me a Nissan 260Z and I needed a, it actually would do 140. Um, uh, but because it was so, my speed was so extraordinary, uh, I couldn't just pay a ticket that they would mail to me. I had, I had to actually appear before the judge. And I kind of thought I would weasel out of it, you know, call, uh, Miami boy coming to Colorado to play ball. They really need me there, you know, little, uh, you know, courtesy. And uh, no, he didn't care at all. <laughs> and as I recall, I think, I've tried to, can't verify this because it was a long time ago, 1976. Um I think the ticket was like about 150 bucks, and it drained my checking account. I had to call my parents when I got to school and have them send me more money. So anyway, there's there's a big difference between my trial and the Apostle Paul's. He wasn't speeding, but um, I was guilty, and he was not. And if you if you've been with us, you know that Paul has had three successful missionary trips. Uh, kind of like the known world in that er region, and um, more more than successful. That's an understatement, actually. But now he he went to Jerusalem. He's recouping. He's with Christian people. He's celebrating with the church, experiencing fellowship, and kind of getting renewed and refreshed. And um, everything that he did that was good kind of spun on him. And he's being accused by these super traditional uh, and conservative uh, Jewish folks at the time, Jewish leaders, that he's creating this uprising. And Danny did such a great job last week. Can I hear for Danny? Um, Where, um, you know, they gather in Jerusalem, and they're there to create problems for the apostle Paul. A mob uh, gathers, the Roman soldiers rush in to shut it down and uh, the, as the Roman commander there tries to sort it all out, he decides to have Paul flogged, and then he learns that Paul is actually a Roman citizen, which he cannot be flogged, and he's in chains, and so he's, he puts full stop to everything until he can sort out the matter, and he's, the Roman commander's not familiar with all these Jewish customs, so he doesn't know why this is such a big brouhaha, so he convenes a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like their counsel that would judge these matters. And that's how Paul ends up in this trial that Chris just read about. He's standing before his judge, a Roman governor of the region, and chapters 24 through 26 tell the story. And that's what we're going to cover today. And we're going to see that Paul has two formal trials before Roman leaders, and then there's two unofficial uh, reviews or interviews by other people. And that's where we're headed. Are you guys ready? So buckle up, we're going to go through a lot of chapters fast, I'll tell you a story, and as, I, and as I always do, we're going to circle back around at the end, and talk about how this connects to you and me in 2022 in the Temecula Valley. So the first trial that Paul has is before a man named Felix. He's a Roman governor, and then he rules the area of Judea, and he's a former slave, and, as, and he's, a, he's known as, as being corrupt. extremely brutal. In fact, historians write about him. He reigned like a king with the instincts of a slave. And the case before Felix is so serious that the high priest, Ananias, and other Jewish leaders, and Tertullus, their prosecutor that they've hired, they make a 65-mile trip to Caesarea where Paul is being kept to be at this trial. And there must have been a lot of snickering In the courtroom, as Tertullus gives his opening statement. Chris read this, but I just want to point this out again. He says, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, O great Felix, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation and everywhere and every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Now, um, that's called buttering up. Or you might have another phrase for that, what he just did. But um, the truth is, Felix's governorship is marked by all kinds of conflict in the region and brutality. And historians note, particularly, that he got very little done while he was the king. And then I think then Tertullus looks around, and he's like, he's got to capture this back. I just picture everybody kind of like... (coughs) And uh, so then he be- begins his accusation of Paul. He says, this guy's an insurrectionist. He's leading these militias that are anti-government. He's desecrated religious properties, and we've caught him in the very act. And as all prosecutors say, be- or we know because we've watched Dateline in 2020 and Perry Mason, whatever, we know they always finish to the end by saying, and we will be successful in proving this to you. And, of course, this is not true, and this is a way of bringing spin to what had actually happened. But you have to know that Felix is the Roman governor in this region. He's under immense pressure to keep things tamped down. See, Rome is trying to advance their situation. They want to put their resources and their military into taking new territory, not trying to control problems in territories that they've already conquered. And they expect these governors to stop the train before it gets rolling when there's problems. Additionally, this region has all kinds of natural resources, food, manpower, and they don't want their supply chain interrupted. So Paul is going to be scapegoated. You can probably see that. But then Paul gets up after to tell us, And he demolishes what he said in all his conspiratorial claims. Paul brings facts. And he says, you can verify that I came to Jerusalem only 12 days ago. And in that short time period, I couldn't have organized a thing. Verse 12, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. I was never involved and causing trouble to the city. In fact, they caused this uproar. And in fact, I came bringing money to the poor, Paul tells them. Even money for the religious coffers and even the synagogues in the city would have probably benefited from this money that Paul brought for the poor in Caesarea, or in Jerusalem. Um, The only thing Paul said that he could be possibly guilty of is saying that he believes in the resurrection. And that is an age-old debate among the Jews. You see, Jewish synagogue in the first century is nothing like church today in America. They, they had all kinds of factions in their, in their synagogue. And so you had the Pharisees who believed in, the, uh, in a resurrection, and you had the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection, and yet they're all on the same campus, and so you can imagine they're constantly arguing. I mean, like, the way I picture it is, like, imagine that if at, the, at Sunridge, on this campus, we, we were both Catholic and Protestant together. That's not a slam on any of us, but we have different, there's differences, right? And so we would be in church together with all these tensions, uh, different ways of looking at, you know, nuanced doctrines. And one of these differences for them was this belief in the afterlife or the resurrection. So it's an ongoing debate. It wouldn't cause a riot. And regardless of what Tertullus said, verse 13, they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me, is what Paul says. And so court adjourns that day, and uh, Felix is going to delay his decision because he's, he wants to wait for the Roman commander to come to give him more details, and so... Um, Callers remanded um, to the guards, but in that day, your friends could come and visit you in prison and bring bring you things that you need, and then also you are available outside of the official trial for interview, and that's what happens here. You guys still with me? Okay, so Felix, this is when it gets really good, you guys, he's married to a second wife, and her name is Drizella, and uh, so... She, Drusilla, is the daughter of Agrippa, and she is a sibling with Agrippa II. We're going to remember these names. They're going to come back today. And Bernice. Bernice, Drazilla, and Agrippa II, they're all brother and sister, and we're going to get to some juicy gossip there, so hang on. Drusilla's is Jewish, even though she has a Roman name. She has a Jewish background. And so, um, uh, Felix sends for Paul to stand before Felix and Drusilla. He wants her to be a part of this so that he can understand what is all this about. And uh, Luke writes that they listened to him as he spoke about his faith in Jesus Christ. And Luke doesn't give a lot of detail about what he says in this speech, but What he does say is in verse 25, Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. The reason why that's significant is Felix lured Drusilla away from her first husband named Gaius. So Paul is not shying away from uncomfortable topics here. And it must have had an impact on Felix because he gets dismissive. Like once Paul goes there Felix was afraid and said, "That's enough for now. You may leave, and when I find it convenient, I will send for you." So he's either either in fear for like the conviction that might come upon him, or he's worried that Drusilla will change her mind and repent and leave him. But Felix leaves Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews, and then Luke tells us that he brings him back every once in a while, probably because he wants to extort money from him. Remember, he brought money to the city. So Felix is probably thinking, there's some of that money left, and maybe I can get Paul to kick me some, something under the table so that I can help him out. Paul stays in this situation for two years. And then Felix is replaced by another governor. His name is Festus, not from Gunsmoke, not the Gunsmoke Festus. This is, only people my age are going to get that, I know that. Porcius Festus. And uh, we don't know much about Festus, but we know why Felix was replaced. History shows that he was indicted for a brutal way that he handled uh, a riot between Jews and Gentiles. So when Festus becomes governor, he starts to make his rounds with all the leaders, kind of getting to know who's who and making his connections, forging alliances. And Luke tells us that when he goes up to Jerusalem, he meets with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders regarding Paul. And they say, hey, um, Festus, why don't you send Paul up here? And we'll hold his trial here um, in uh, Jerusalem. But um, they were planning to kill Paul in that trip. And I think that Festus must have smelled a rat. And so he says, nah, why don't you guys come down here to Caesarea with me instead? And at that point, they're kind of like Swiper and Dora. I know you guys keep up on all this. Where he gets discovered trying to steal something. He's like, Swiper, no swiping. (laughs) Man! Right? how many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Grandparents and parents of younger children. So the leaders come down to Caesarea, and they're not there to like, you know, like get justice. Right away, this thing gets out of hand. Acts 25, 7, when Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, and they brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So they this is, not a, this is not a typical court scene. You don't, like, gather around the accused and start shouting things about them. Uh, this is getting out of hand. And Paul declares his innocence, and he makes his defense before Felix. And then maybe because Paul's losing his steam, he's been in jail for two years, kind of waiting for something to happen. He sees that, you know, people are really riled up. He could be lynched at any moment. And he makes a bold move. And in verse 11, he says, you know, I don't refuse to die. But if the changes brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And that, just like we have appeals today in court, only there's been no judgment yet. And as a Roman citizen, Paul has the right to appeal to Caesar if his, if his case kind of meets the criteria, and Festus is relieved to wash his hands of this whole matter, and he says, okay, to Caesar you will go. So Paul will go to Rome, just as he had previously envisioned. We talked about that a few messages ago, but it's going to be under way different circumstances than he ever imagined. I mean, Paul was thinking that one day I'll go to Rome, and I'll, I'll plant churches there, and I'll start a whole new outreach from Rome. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's all working out. He's actually going to go to Rome, but the circumstances are totally different than what he was hoping for. But before he goes to Rome, some other dignitaries come to visit, and this is where the second unofficial review comes. So Agrippa... Which is King Herod Agrippa II. And remember, they're a hereditary dynasty. They are, um, we've listed the Herods here before, um, so I'm not gonna go into that. But the Herods, they have a Jewish history, but they're placed by Rome to kind of keep control of the locals in Judea. And uh, if you recall, Herod the Great, he was the one that murdered all the babies when he heard that the Messiah was born, when Jesus was born. And so, uh, you know, because it's a family dynasty, they just keep handing these jobs down. And Agrippa II is the last of these Herods. And uh, he is with Bernice, who uh, was previously married to her uncle, who was another Herod, but is now the sister lover of Agrippa II. So remember I told you we're going to get to some juicy gossip? So Drusilla, the wife of Felix, is the sister of Agrippa II and Bernice. And Agrippa II and Bernice are together. So this would have been in People magazine or something in the first century. Are you guys uncomfortable with that? So uh, Festus, as he's with uh, Bernice and Agrippa, he kind of summarizes the whole case. And he says, like, this is like, this is nothing. I don't even know why this is uh, before me, but I could use your input. And Agrippa said to Festus, "Uh, I'd like to hear this man myself. So Paul's kind of like entertainment in a way. And uh, so Paul stands before them. And then in chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. And in verses 1 through 23, Paul goes on to declare his innocence. He says, Jewish people know who I am. They know that I lived as a Pharisee my whole life. In fact, I was zealous in in opposition to Christianity. I persecuted those who converted to it. And he says, but then everything changed for me when I encountered Jesus. And it's in those verses that Paul tells uh, for the third time as Luke records his conversion story, how he met Jesus on the Damascus road. And he said, this Jesus said to me in verse 16, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you've seen and what you will, excuse me, what, what you'll see of me. So he's basically saying, I've got to do what God tells me to do not what you guys are going to tell me to do. But also he he again addresses this idea that Christianity is not in conflict with Judaism. It is the natural outflow of where Judaism was headed. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Verse 22, God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said What happened? And it appears that uh, Paul's speech is just too much for the pragmatic Roman governor Festus. And he's lost in the details of all this. And he's just kind of fed up. So he interrupts Paul, and in verse 24, he interrupts Paul's defense and he says, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your learning is driving you insane. And Paul says, Oh, no, no, no. Verse 25, I'm not insane most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And then he looks at Agrippa and he says, you know, the king, you, Agrippa, you're familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And the challenge here is for Agrippa to make the connection between what the prophets had said, and the Messiah, Jesus, coming. And so he's in a pickle. This is a dilemma for him because he knows the Jewish scriptures. He knows what Paul is talking about. But he chooses to sidestep this question. Verse 28, he said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, he says, I'm on to you, Paul. And with a little smirk on his face, he said, I know what you're trying to do here. And then Paul must have a sense of humor in this situation because in verse 29, he replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Thank you for the one person that got that. (laughs) Clearly everyone in the room agrees that Paul is falsely accused. And in verse 30, Luke tells us the king rose and with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they had left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or punishment imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So this choice by Paul earlier on is, is not paying dividends in a way. It kind of put him in a pickle because once he started that process, it has to continue. So Paul's going to go to Rome. That's going to be next week. And he's going to stand trial before Caesar, the highest court in the land. And that's as far as we're going to go today. And as usual, Acts is the history of the first century church, right? But it's not just their history, right? Right? This is our story as well. So what in the world does a handful of stories about Paul's trials have to do with you and me? Well, first of all, I don't know about you guys, but when I read these, um, I'm just in awe of these people. Their bravery. And I'm intimidated by the intelligence that people like the Apostle Paul has and his ability to communicate and to think on his feet. And for me, it just makes it all unreachable. It's like, I'm never going to be, I know I'm never going to be completely like Jesus. I'm certainly never going to be like the Apostle Paul either. But it does seem to me that in every generation, God raises people up like this. You know, in the time that I have lived, I think about people, brilliant people, brave people, remarkably intelligent people like Tim Keller. Dallas Willard and Andy Stanley and David French and Beth Moore and Tony Evans and Carolyn Custis James and Rick Warren. Those are just names that you probably have a list of names as well. And we're always going to need these great thinkers and these great communicators that can think thoughts that guide us, that contribute to great sermons like this one. But what about all the rest of us? What about us just ordinary people? And that's what I want to focus on for the remaining time that we have here. And here's the main thought, if you're filling out your notes. You are Christ's ambassador. You are Christ's ambassador. In fact, Paul wrote these very words to the believers at Corinth in his second letter, chapter 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, you know what an ambassador is, right? You have a general idea of that. They're a representative. They're a spokesperson. They are an example. If you're a Christian, we are ambassadors for Jesus. Mom, you're an ambassador to your kids for who Jesus is. Dad, You're an ambassador. You are a representative of Jesus. They are learning about God, not just in Sunday school, not just from their Bible, but they are learning it from mom and dad. You have neighbors. You live in a neighborhood. You're an ambassador. They are reading the Bible by our lives in the neighborhoods that we live in. You're an ambassador at work with your supervisors and your coworkers. You're an ambassador at your school with your fellow students, in your dorms, in college, even if you're getting a speeding ticket on the way there. And it's plain here that Paul is not just defending himself here. He's not just trying to wiggle out of what has happened. The whole process, as he stands trial, he sees himself as an ambassador of Jesus. And that is the heartbeat of the first century church, that I'm wondering if we still have that today. Now, Lord willing, none of us are going to stand on trial for being a Christian or because we shared the gospel with someone, but we are His ambassadors wherever we find ourselves, and we need to recapture that passion and the focus of that purpose that God has called us to affect the world by representing Him in the relationships that we're in. You know, this week I had a conversation with somebody who was not on trial, but they were going through a trial, a big one. And they said to me, you know, as I go through this, I just want to make God proud. That was the thing that was most important to them. That's what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus today, is those who name the name of Jesus Now, there are a few noteworthy parts about being an ambassador that I think we can infer from these chapters that we just looked at. There's a representative character of the ambassador, there's the content of their belief, and there's the persuasive intents that they have. And so, I'm going to give you three things that are needed for us to be an ambassador. Number one, we we have a need for Christ-like character. Christ-like character. Being an ambassador involves more than just saying words. In his trial before Felix, Paul said this, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. In other words, Paul recognizes how important character is. If we're going to represent God, our character matters. And in this case, there's no accusation that can be made against Paul. He doesn't lie. He doesn't constantly reshape his beliefs when it suits his purposes. He doesn't cover up things in his life so that he can keep money flowing to his organization. He's not carrying on with someone behind the scenes. He's not hypocritical in his beliefs where he's, he says, today I believe this, tomorrow I don't believe that, or I only believe it for that person. He was a man of integrity through and through. And being Christ's ambassador if we're going to represent him, then our lives, the character that we have, must mirror the character of Jesus. I'm gonna, do you agree or disagree with this statement? The most important thing about representing Jesus in the world is our character. The most important thing about representing Jesus in the world today is our character. It's not, it's not what we believe. That's important. We're going to talk about that. It's not what we say. It's our character. Now, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I don't want to feel guilty. We're not talking about being perfect. But it's worth asking the question, am I reflecting the character of Jesus? As I represent him in the world, in my home, with my kids, at work, and what I throw out on social media, in the public square, when I go to school board meetings or city councils, am I representing the character of who Jesus Christ is? A character isn't everything, but it's the foundation upon which everything else stands. Wouldn't you agree? Like, people don't care what you have to say or how smart you are if you don't live it. Our lives speak much more loudly than our words. There's a need for Christ-like character if we're going to represent Jesus as his ambassador. Secondly, there's a need for informed biblical decisions, informed biblical convictions. I mean, sorry. Now, this this is not just about read your Bible more. Although biblical ignorance is on the rise, we've talked about that before, we should all read our Bible more. I wish I read my Bible more. And I read it a lot because I have to stand up here for 30 or 40 minutes every week and talk about the Bible. So, but you don't have that pressure on you, probably. But we should be invested in understanding the Bible. It's not just about how much of the Bible we know, but it's also how we take it in how we process what we're learning. Because I bet you, like me, you know Christians that know a lot about the Bible, who read it all the time and listen to it, but, but you wonder, who are they? Where are our convictions coming from today? The things that, we're, that we believe most strongly the things are at the forefront of our brain and our concerns, are they shaped through informed biblical conviction? Or are they more shaped by cable news? Or my political party? Or the current cultural value? Or what's expedient for me today? What works for me in this moment right now? You see, Biblical ignorance is on the rise, but I think we should also be looking at ourselves through the lens of, are we really embracing the truth over and above the other things that matter to us? Does the Scripture matter most? Sometimes I think we treat the Bible like a buffet. How many of you are buffet people? Yeah, me neither. (laughs) This valley keeps getting a buffet every once in a while, and you know, like you go down there and it's open for a while, and then we're like, "No, that food's no good." Sorry if you own a buffet, <laughs> in town, if you're invested there. Uh, when the first one opened in town, my wife will remember this. We forget what the name of was. I shouldn't say it online, but they had one of those yogurt machines. And it ran out, you know, like they just open and things don't go good when you first open something. And there was a gentleman over there, like he was an elderly gentleman, and he was shaking it. And he was going, come on, machine. And he was so angry, the yogurt wasn't coming out. And I'm like, that's scary. <laughs> anyway, that had nothing to do with the message. I just thought it's <laughs> some memory that fired off in my brain. Uh, where was I? So, you know, in a buffet, you get to, like, pick this and that. It's like, oh, man, that fried chicken's looking good. And uh, ham, whatever your thing is. But I think sometimes we, like, we take the Scripture in the same way. It's like, ooh, that I really like that one. Ooh, I like am I don't like that one. Like, and we just kind of go down with our tray. And I think that's creating so much confusion in the world about Christianity. About what are, who are Christians? What we believe. And I think it's creating... Confusion among our kids, too. Parents, you know, Paul doesn't shy away from the truth. In his his conversations with Felix and Drusilla, he says, Luke tells us he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He didn't shy away from something that needed to be said. And I wonder, are we standing on the truth of Jesus only when it's convenient or only when it works out or only when it's... uh, when it's, you know, I can line it all up for the thing that I want to do most. Think about your relationship with your, your wife or your husband. It's like, you know, you get in a fuss and, you know, does this, this Christianity go right out the window when that happens? None of you live in my neighborhood, do you, by the way? Um, and our kids, parents, they're under immense pressure right now. All kinds of things are coming at them, and and like, how are we directing them? Are we pointing them to Scripture? Are we having thoughtful conversations with them about what they're dealing with? Um, Or are we like Felix? Felix was afraid, and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Like, I, sometimes I feel like saying that to a scripture that I was like, that's enough for now. Our values and our priorities being developed from those informed biblical convictions, where it's not a buffet, but it is us humbly bowing ourselves before the teachings of Jesus and scripture so to be an ambassador for Jesus, we need, um, we need those informed biblical convictions because they're going to form our character. They're going to inform our character. And then last, representing Jesus entails a need for persuasive advocacy. Persuasive advocacy. You know, when you're an ambassador for a nation and you go and represent, like, the U.S., you're representing the United States of America, and you don't just, you know, like, and you got to use some finesse every once in a while. I've never been an ambassador, but I'm just kind of injecting myself into that. It's like, you don't just go in and blow them up with like, America says this, so get on the program. They negotiate, and they work with people, and they treat them with respect. Why? Because as representatives of America, of the the interests of the United States, they want to persuade these nations to work with us, to cooperate with us. And you know, in Christian advocacy, there's both a divine side and a human side that goes with that. And we can't just like swing the pendulum one way or the other. You know, if you overemphasize the divine, you just start to think that, well, it's all up to God. I don't, it, I have nothing to do with this. So however I say it, whatever I say, it doesn't matter. I just give them the truth straight. Bam, there you go. Up to God. And uh, if you're all on the human side of being persuasive, then you think it's all up to you. And if, you know, you can't, you know, you have. Your Starbucks barista and you haven't won them to Jesus in one conversation, you're like, oh, God's not using me, you know, um, I better learn some more arguments so I can convert them and trick them, you know, I can get them, you know. The truth is it's both. Persuasive advocacy is the truth being spoken in a way that moves people toward God, And, you know, it is God's Spirit that moves people, right? But he uses human beings. I would imagine that the far majority of everyone here who would say, I'm a Christian, somebody was involved in helping you become a Christian. That's the human side. The point is that Paul is definitely concerned for himself in these these trials, but he's not self-serving. Instead, he's persuasively presenting the gospel, and he takes every opportunity that God gives him to do so. So that Agrippa candidly says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, he gets what's happening here. Paul is trying to convince him. And even though he doesn't embrace Christian faith in that moment, you know, as a as a dignitary and a king, he had all kinds of other ways to respond to that, right? But you can tell that there's a connection happening there. Paul almost gets them. And I wonder, do we see the opportunities in front of us? I'm going to have the band come up, and as they do, I think it's worth asking, how does my life, how... How do the things that God is teaching me through Scripture, how the way I live, my character, what way that I talk to other people, how is that moving people toward God? Is my character, the things that I know, and the way that I know them, how am I using that to move people toward God? We can't make them do it, but like we're part of that process. What I'm saying is that Christians, do you know that Christianity is on the decline? We've talked about that before. And uh, there's uh, Pew Research just came out with a new study. Um, I just saw it this week. That in a couple of decades, there'll be less Christians than are Christian in the United States. Yeah. So we're going like this. I can't help but wonder, like, why is that happening? It could just be the end times and, you know, da, da, da. But it could also be because the world is thirsty for people who look like Jesus and have informed biblical theology and can speak to people in a winsome way, a persuasive way. And I think for Paul in that moment, the, he, I, I know he didn't want to go to prison. He wanted to get free. But I think in that moment, the number one thing on his mind was like Agrippa. And like, can I get him to move a step toward God? Each one of us this week, when we leave this building, we're going to have opportunities like that. You're going to go to work. You're going to do your thing. You're going to be in a neighborhood. You're going to like get a speeding ticket. You know, all kinds of things. You're going to encounter people all the time. And it's those opportunities that we can, we can remember we're ambassadors for Christ. That's how Paul looked at his life. And in doing that, we demonstrate God's character. We have informed biblical decisions. And there's a winsomeness, the way that we talk to people so that our lives, if not like full circle, can help people take one more step